This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors, exclusively on the Bun 2.0, KBUNFM 104.5. Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors is sponsored by DS Beverages, Paul Bunyan Country's distributor of Anheuser-Busch and Budweiser. By Northern Surplus Northern Outdoors in downtown Bemidji. Bonded Lock and Key, your home for Liberty Gun Safes, and Pine Ridge Service. Coming up later in the show, I continue my conversation with John Williams, the Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager on elk and turkey hunting. But first, what a difference a day makes. Last week, in part one with John, we discussed the just-concluded deer hunting seasons and the latest on CWD. At that time, John expressed very cautious optimism about chronic wasting disease in deer remaining in the corner of southeast Minnesota, although he wondered if we could keep the genie in the bottle. Later, that very same day, we found out the answer was no. A dead deer found in Crow Wing County in January tested positive for CWD, and that changes everything. So today, we get started with the DNR's Wildlife Research Manager, Lou Cornicelli. Lou, uh, going into the hunting season, we talked a little bit about the CWD situation and hoping we could keep it con- you know, contained into that southeast corner. And it sounded until just earlier this week that that had happened, but we had a bit of a bad twist of fate this week, huh? Yeah, it's been a little bit uh, challenging for the last few days uh, with the new discovery in Crow Wing County. So we're, you know, we're, we're still getting all of our facts together and, and uh, trying to put all the pieces in place for what our next steps are responsible but certainly it's 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 really disappointing i'm not going to sugarcoat that so what what do we know what, as of now one deer has been discovered in crow wing yeah. county correct so if you go back to 20 26 late 2016 there was a a captive server facility uh, that was identified as infected um the facility opted not to depopulate their animals which is which is legal um, but that rolls into our CWD response plan, which is risk-based. So we look at, at surveillance as a measure of risk. And a, a positive captive server facility is, by definition, risk. So we designed our surveillance program to last over over three years. And three years is because that's how long the disease can be in a, in a deer before it becomes uh, in, uh, clinical. So we tested, um, over the last two deer seasons, we've tested almost 9,000 deer as part of that risk-based surveillance program over opening weekend, and we haven't found anything. Now, since the farm hadn't depopulated, we were likely going to be doing surveillance until uh, um, until all the deer were gone and then three years past that. But it just towards the end of January, uh, a citizen called in a dead deer near the farm. The conservation officer picked it up. Our area wildlife staff sampled it, and it came back positive. So that resets everything for us. Um, uh, you know, good on our – good on – you know, the, the system works, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the, someone turned it in because it, it was, you know, close to the farm. It was found dead, I think, near a, a lakeshore cabin. Seasonal residents, you know, got turned in. The CO picked it up. It went to the biologist, and it went from there. So the system worked, even though the, the outcome isn't what we wanted. Um, the, uh, you know, the right, all the right steps were taken. For those who aren't familiar, when we're talking about the farm, what are we talking about here? Well, it's a, it's a captive uh, deer facility, so in other words, in Minnesota, it's legal to raise uh, uh, captive cervids, and cervids being deer, elk, reindeer, um, and the assorted other things that people people buy. So those facilities are regulated by the Board of Animal Health, which is um, uh, another agency outside the Department of An- uh, Natural Resources. So they manage uh, livestock and livestock disease, and in, and in Minnesota, um, farmed deer and elk uh, are considered livestock. 
So they fall under the regulatory authority of the of the livestock agencies. Um, okay. So that's that's where that's where the distinction lies. So it's it's we work very closely with the board. So I'm going to I'm going to draw a you know kind of a clear distinction, but it's really not that clear. You know, the Board of Animal Health has responsibility for everything inside the fence. The Department of Natural Resources has responsibility for outside the fence. You know, al- although remember we work very closely on a host of issues. Where, where both jurisdictions cross, but the easy analogy is, you know, in them, out us. Okay, got it. Um, and like you said, this is this is not good news. Um, and I suppose, uh, yeah, you have to you have to sit back and take a deep breath and not uh, not respond too rashly or too harshly. You got to figure out really what the what the best plan is. Correct. You know, and and there's we have a CWD response plan really for initial detection, and that's that's on our website. It's readily available. It's the cookbook that we use. Going to do when we find disease, when we find disease, where we find disease. So we're gonna we're gonna rely heavily on that document because it's worked in the past, um, and it's 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 time, for lack of a better term, it's time tested. Uh, so we'll work we'll work off that. Uh, but really, the, the the things to kind of think about for for listeners is that you know we didn't know this two weeks ago, or, or we just you know a week and a half ago. You know, we know now, and we're going to know more as the months go forward. So we're going to we're going to do our best to be diligent, and make make good decisions, and involve the public um, in what we're trying to do, which is really stomp this disease out before you know it, it gets a foothold, like it may very well have done in Fillmore County. So, you know, we have one positive deer, um, female deer, uh, uh, you know, near this facility. So we're going to have to do a lot more surveillance around the facility to see if. if if, if it's bigger than this or, or if it's just this and then really more, really more to come over the next month or so and then moving into the deer season next fall. Okay. And for those who also aren't familiar, although I am now, because I've talked about it a lot over the last couple of years, what is chronic wasting disease? Well, CWD is what they call a prion disease. So it's, it's a malformed protein that is what the, basically it causes spongiform uh, spaces in the brain, so it causes neurological symptoms and eventually death. If if listeners have heard of mad cow disease in, in cattle or uh, scraping in sheep, it's the same type of agent. Now, all of those agents are a little bit different, but they're all they're all what they call we call prions. And uh, for for people who want to learn more, you can go to the DNR website mndnr.gov/cwd, or just Google chronic wasting disease, and you'll you'll know probably more than. Uh, more than you want to know, but I would ask people to dismiss the conspiracy theories because it's not helpful for anyone. So there's some good websites out there, but basically it's a it's a chronic disease that affects the brain and is 100% fatal. So our concern over the long term is when a disease like this takes hold in populations, it'll eventually influence those populations. So much like any detection of a disease in humans or animals, your best opportunity uh, is to, to deal with it really aggressively right up front. And that, that's been our plan, and that's, that's our hope that we can do that in this case, too. I, I know for, you know, for those who are wondering, um, there are some examples of what it can do to a state. It's been, it's been real bad news for Wisconsin. It, it has, you know, and, and that's kind of the, the, kind of the part of the Internet you don't want to pay attention to is, is the stuff that says, well, it's been in Wisconsin for 30 years and there's no problem, or it's been in Colorado for 50 years and it's no problem. That's not right. Um, the Wisconsin is kind of start is really starting to see 
pretty big increases in prevalence, which is the percent of deer infected. And over time, that will have an impact on populations. That's like, you know, it's like saying, well, I don't brush my teeth. I, I stopped brushing my teeth today, so therefore I'll never have a cavity. Um, you can't, you can't transfer what you see today into what will exist 10 years from now or five years from now. And, you know, Wisconsin uh, um, was in a bad spot in 2002 when they first found the disease because it was already established, and they didn't know that. Nobody knew that. And now they're looking at infection rates in, in males in some counties at 50% today. Tomorrow it might be, or next year it might be 55 and then 60. And then you'll start seeing um, um, impacts on populations and overall because of mortality factors. So the point is to not, you know, is to work really hard to not get there. And that's, that's what, what we're committed to do is, is, you know, leave this a legacy of healthy deer, not a legacy of diseased deer. And, uh, and, the, and our chance is to jump on stuff as soon as we find it. I noticed uh, on the internet a lot of opinions flying already. You know, oh, that ban these farms oh. was one of them that's out there, and um, um, DNR is going to overreact was another one that was out there. So, it's oh, I'm sure that's fun to read, that, right? You know, <laughs> uh, I you know to be honest, I, I some of my friends send me stuff uh, mainly just to, to throw the jerk bait in front of my nose, <laughs> uh, but I don't I don't I kind of quit looking at social media because it's just awful. <laughs> um, you, you know, I, I, uh, I've heard every, I've, I've heard, you know, that, that I personally dropped it, dropped, dropped the deer off because I hate game farms. You know, it's just like, I, I okay. <laughs> you know, that, so, um, but I've heard all sorts of stuff that the DNR, you know, DNR planted the deer, you know, I specifically planted the deer that there's really no record of this deer ever being picked up. It's just like, it's, you know, folks like to speculate wildly on the internet, and there's not much we can do about it because we don't typically spend a lot of time dispelling every rumor that comes up. The bottom line is, uh, a deer was called in a half mile from that farm that the conservation officer picked up that turned up positive for CWD. So the the question is now, how are we going to respond, and how are we going to keep long term deer populations healthy? So, okay. and that's you know that's what we want to do. So you're saying you didn't drop off the deer. I did not. No, um, I, I've actually never been since you know since the, you know uh, I, I've never been. I've been to Brainerd and I've been all over the state, but I've never specifically been to Merrifield. But I guess I'm going to be going here pretty soon. But no, I didn't. Neither neither did anybody else. You know, yeah. I think, uh, it's. I think we could comfortably say that we would much rather be working on on wildlife populations, habitat research, acquisition, then we would be responding to disease events. and But we're obligated to respond to those disease events because we don't want to leave disease on the landscape. So, um, you know, it, it, it is what it is, and we're going to do the best we can to, to, to say, we, you know, we, we, we solve this problem. So what would be the next steps? Well, I think we're trying to pull together a public meeting, for one. You know, we always try and talk to the community, uh, tell them, what, you know, what, what did we find, really just, just uh, address some of those, that rumor-mongering that's going on. We can do that directly. Um, we're trying to get a sense for where deer are distributed right now, um, and then can we do some local removals around uh, around this facility and the positive deer um, to, see, to see what we're up against for next fall, and then we'll start talking about what's the fall going to look like. So okay. that's, that, that would be the short-term plans, but the first step is going to be to I'll work through some engagement with local communities because we know this, you know, this, this, you know, it, this hits our own staff, you know, that, you know, right, right across the nose, you know, uh, so you get, you have the shock initially and what does this mean and what do we do? And so we have to get kind of past that 
um, and start talking to, to folks who are going to be affected and, and get on the same page with, with things. Well, Lou Corticelli, he is the Wildlife Research Manager at the DNR, taking a few minutes today to chat with us uh, on this uh, latest development. Uh, you know, uh, Lou, we appreciate you taking the time today and uh, wish you the best of luck and your staff the best of luck in, uh, in solving this. You bet, Kev. I appreciate the time. More of the great outdoors with Kev Jackson next on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Bunyan Country Outdoors, sponsored by Pine Ridge Service, DS Beverages, Bonded Lock and Key, and Northern Surplus Northern Outdoors. Check us out at KBUNSportsRadio.com. You can click on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you can subscribe to the podcast on Podcast One and iTunes. Well, last week we talked all things deer with John Williams, the Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager, and today we move on to some other topics, including elk hunting and turkey hunting. Let's talk a little bit about elk. I know we've got a couple of areas where there's some elk hunting up in this neck of the woods. How is that going? This was a, a hallmark year for us oh, in elk. Good. We actually had uh, 22 permits that were issued, which is the most in any modern elk season we've had in the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, we basically started uh, hunting elk largely because of uh, some agreements we had made with uh, uh, people that live in the elk range area there uh, to try not to let the population get more than what they feel like they should uh, have to deal with. And this year we were above goal in, in um, a couple of areas, uh, in particular the, the Lancaster, what we call Kitson Central area there. I think we issued um, a total of 20 permits in that area this year. And the other area is the Caribou Vida area, which is just a little bit further uh, to the east of the Lancaster area where those uh, two elk herds are, are located at. Of the 22 permits, 17 elk were taken. Uh, Generally, uh, if you have a either sex or a bull license there, you can expect to have a very good chance of shooting an elk that you want to put on the wall. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have some very, very good genetics in our elk uh, in those particular areas, and, and people enjoy the, the chance to do that. The other herd that we have is the Gregla herd, and it is um, below goal right now, and we haven't had a season on them since 2012. Um, and uh, just recently, in fact, yesterday, I learned for the first time in a couple of years now, we have a little bit of an uptake in the number of elk that we've seen on our elk survey. So that's that's encouraging news, but we're still pretty low in terms of the numbers overall. For example, the the goal range for the Grigla herd is 30 to 38. Uh, right now, I think we counted 19, right, that. Okay. Last year, the uh, Kitson Central herd, our goal range up there is um, six, uh, 50 to 60, and uh, we had counted, I believe – it was 75 the, the previous year. We haven't done that survey yet this year. That's, that's actually ongoing when we get it, when we get whether we can fly in again. And, uh, you know, if we're above goal, we'll be issuing uh, permits again for the coming season for that as well. Caribou Vida, um, uh, last year, let, let me see, Kitson Central, I think I said 75 elk is what mm-hmm. we saw last year. Caribou Vida, our goal range for that herd is 150 to 200. We jointly manage that with Manitoba, and uh, we meet yearly to talk about the, what we're seeing, how the herd's doing, and, and whatnot. In any one particular uh, day, we can have 
anywhere from 70 to 80 elk on the U.S. side of the border or down to maybe just a handful, seven or eight, something like that. So we probably, uh, if we're going to survey that herd, we need to survey at the same time that Manitoba does theirs or else we just don't have a valid number from that standpoint. So we did have a couple of permits uh, in that particular herd. They were two bull permits and two very nice bulls were taken this year. Okay. Now, um, and and elk are primarily in agricultural areas, so it's in that mixed uh, area, that transition zone. Okay. Uh, but yes, there are agricultural there. Uh, in particular, the Lancaster herd uh, is in areas where they're growing soybeans and some of those crops, which is a favorite of elk. We can have problems with that, but more so uh, areas where there are. Uh, beef producing farms, cattle producing uh, up there, and elk can get in a lot of trouble with stored forage, hay and beets, uh, pulp that's being fed and stuff like that. So that's an issue that we've had to deal with from day one. And have, have elk always been in those parts of the state? The Grigla herd, kind of yes. Um, boy, we I could talk a long time on elk here, but... <laughs> But, you know, elk in general were over most of the state. The only places originally uh, when the state was in settlement days, uh, the Arrowhead area wouldn't have had uh, many elk, if any, at all. But the prairie and, and that transition area in the, in the state would have been full of elk, uh, a lot of them. And over time, in 1914, uh, things were so uh, concerning to the legislature at that time, they, they decided they wanted to uh, try to reduce, release some elk and try to get the elk herd built back up in the state. Um, through various means, it was um, finally successful in that northern Beltrami area um, where there was a, a foothold of elk that were, were finally established. That later became the Grigla herd, and, and of course, even from the, the early days and around 1939, 1940, we began to see elk depredation problems with agriculture even that far back, and it's been that way ever since. At one time, that population was up to about 100 elk, and then right now, uh, it's down to the, like I say, the 19. We're largely managing within that goal range. If we're above it, we'll, we'll take the elk down to it as an agreement uh, within our area uh, people that live there and stuff like that. The Kitson Central Herd is a conundrum to not only Minnesota but also Manitoba. We really don't know where those elk came from. Um, they could be from areas further north or further west uh, in northern Canada or even western U.S. Don't know for sure. The Pimina area, you know, which has a native elk herd, but they are wild elk. Uh, they are not... Uh, they're not released elk. They're not tame elk or things like that. We had problems with tame elk up there, but we largely took care of that back when about 2008. Okay. Um, and you actually uh, put out a uh, an elk uh, newsletter. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's basically a, a fairly uh, broad uh, letter called the Raghorn. Uh, Blaine Klemick and uh, Christy Coughlin in the region largely worked to put that together. It's about a 31-page report this year, and uh, anybody that would like to be on our mailing list for that elk newsletter, they can simply call up to the region, uh, 218-308-2651. Talk to Rhonda, Blaine, or I, and we'll mail them, email them a, a copy of that they can have, and they'll be on a newsletter list that we can uh, mail out whenever we produce a letter again. Right now it's an annual letter, but it is chocked full of just really good information about Minnesota elk. Are there more people who want to hunt elk than you're able to give 
licensed to at this point? By far. Okay. You know, 22 permits uh, that we had this year and probably 1,500 to 2,000 applicants. Really? Okay. So, yeah, there's quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, our elk are somewhat famous for their rack size. You know, if you, if you draw either sex tag or a bull tag, you could be in for a hunt of a lifetime as far as a trophy that you can take, it, take home. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's completely change uh, gears here. Uh, turkey season's coming pretty soon. In fact, uh, I think uh, – Permitting is done for the first couple of seasons, right? The first season is the lottery season, uh, A and B season, and uh, uh, if you didn't get your name in by the 25th of January, you're probably stuck with either hoping the, the whole number of permits don't sell during those two seasons or you're stuck with the uh, C through F season, which anybody can hunt by just going up to an ELS agent, buying a turkey license and, and hunting in an area of their choice. Okay. That's better be coming up. That's basically April and May uh, when that happens. We have... Um, some very good turkey hunting in this state. And most people that will know will say, yeah, I, I see turkeys quite often. And, of course, they're showing up around the Bemidji area now as well in numbers as, uh, to boot. And we have turkeys that go all the way up to the Canadian border. Um, wow. Uh, it, when I was on my way to Winnipeg, I actually was up by Tolstoy and, and actually seen a turkey cross the road. And I thought, my goodness sakes, they've, they've really taken off to the north. The northwest was basically done in uh, some releases that we had in 2006. And uh, they took off. They took off well. We really didn't think they'd make it up there because of the snow depth. But uh, it hasn't been the case. They've, they've been doing just fine. Yeah, I know that, uh, you know, I've, I've heard about it for years uh, down in the southern part of the state. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, every you know, people don't have to go that far to go turkey hunting anymore. No, you you can uh, have a 10, 15-minute drive and still put yourself in some decent turkey hunting around Bemidji. So, or go longer and, and go to various areas that you may know them. There's public land you can hunt on or private land as well. And uh, it's a real fun sport uh, to try to call in a, a tom and, and uh, uh, have a chance to take one home for a, either a Mother's Day dinner or a Thanksgiving dinner, whatever you'd like to do. And that, and that has really taken off. Yeah. And I think part of that, obviously, is, is closeness. You know, you, you don't have to travel. You don't have to do hotels. You can, you can hunt for turkeys in your neck of the woods now yeah. and all of a sudden you have a hunting season in april and may which you didn't have before sure so it uh and what a wonderful time to be out you know spring wildflowers are out hunt a little later and there's mushrooms you can take a look at and maybe bring a bag of those home too so a lot of fun wow how much how many people are uh, are putting in applications these days oh you have to ask uh, <laughs> <laughs> kevin i can't say i, I don't okay. know for sure on that but uh uh, the state does pretty well with, with turkey season for a state that uh, I, I don't think you'd consider uh, in terms of historically a classic turkey area. No. I mean, I know we are the uh, number one producer in the nation for domestic turkey. Yes, sir. That's a little different animal. That's a different animal, different color, too, <laughs> yes, for the most part. Yes, <laughs> very much. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, like you said, you released some up here. So it was a, it was kind of a testing thing. Back in 06? 06. Uh, it was, you know, we didn't even look at releasing turkeys in the Northwest. There was originally, when I first came to Minnesota in the early 90s, it was thought that about the average depth of 14 inches was a place where turkeys couldn't survive past that point, largely because they couldn't scratch down deep enough to get things on the ground, you know, because of the snow depth. Well, it turned out that didn't really make that to be the case uh, okay. a couple things in a uh, change that bird feeders actually uh, a lot of turkeys will take a handout from bird feed um, their um, um, 
pretty adaptable by eating buds as well, just like the grouse do and stuff like that. So they've they have proved to be more resilient and more adaptive than I think any of us gave it gave us credit for. Uh, I, I think the the book on turkey management has probably been rewritten about three times just because they've far exceeded what our, our thought was. That also puts them in, an, in a category where they can cause some problems too. And we have problems with a number of turkeys that maybe get around a feedlot in, in uh, some areas where uh, they can spook the cattle. They can actually consume a lot of the food. Or in towns where they come in and, and they make themselves at home and uh, they try to push people around a little bit, you know, <laughs> which which is, you know, for, for me, a person who's, you know, dealt with wildlife most all of his life, you know, um, you just have to know how to talk with one and, and uh, you know, behave around it. Uh, but other people who aren't familiar with those things, and that can be a problem for them. So yeah. they roost on cars and leave their calling cards uh, as they do that. And uh, people don't particularly like that as well. So <laughs> I imagine not. Yeah, that's true. You know, uh, it's interesting. You know, wildlife management has a few things that, uh, you know, when we didn't have them, they were, they were awful things that we could miss. You know, and there are some things that we lost altogether, passenger pigeon, things, things like that. Turkeys is a comeback critter. Deer are in, in, in many areas of the country further south and here. Um, wood duck's another one like this. And uh, Canada goose is one that, uh, especially the giant Canada goose, is one that, that uh, we weren't sure if we were going to have that subspecies around. And all of a sudden, they're the most common goose we have. And uh, they can have a problem too. So in terms of uh, getting in people's yard or on their beaches and things like that. So... Um, yeah, wildlife management has never been boring. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, the turkey uh, seasons run when? Well, let's see. Uh, I do have a copy of that if I can find my, my list here. Uh, it starts off a season is April 17th, uh, so that will be the first season. There are six seasons in the state. They're about a week long each. So the first two seasons, April 17th to the 23rd and April 24th to the 30th, those are the lottery seasons where you have to draw in and, and get chosen for them. Or there's extra tags and you can pick one up after the people have bought their license and there's like that. Okay. And then the other seasons, the other four seasons, May 1st to the 7th, May 8th to the 14th, May 15th to the 21st and May 22nd to the 31st are the seasons that you can simply go up and, and uh, buy a, a turkey license over the counter. The state is zoned off and you do have to pick an area to which to hunt. And right now you can't just bop around between zones, but the zones are extremely large. Uh, archery season is the ex exception to that. If you buy an archery license, you can hunt anywhere in the state without license, you know, where they have turkeys. Okay. Um, the last season, F season, is also a unique season. If you aren't lucky during the A, B, C, D, or E season, you can hunt the F season as well with your unused tag. So okay. it's really quite facilitating for this. We are currently talking about some options that will make uh, turkey hunting a little more liberal than what it currently is today as well. So more to come on that in, the, in years to follow. So Okay. Yeah. So what is the uh, Wildlife Regional Office doing this time of the year? Staying warm. <laughs> just like us <laughs> well we do a lot of work um to try to understand where we where we've been uh, how did the hunting seasons go that question about why we didn't shoot as many deer as what we expected to shoot would probably be on our minds we'll be looking at some of the factors that influence that uh this is a time of year when people write reports as far as how certain seasons went what the expectations were how did how did the, the hunters uh uh, do in terms of, of utilizing the recreation on this type of thing. 
This is also a time of year when we're looking at what do you want to do for spring management work. So prescribed burning right now is being well thought out in terms of uh, where you want to burn, how do we have to do that. Uh, wildlife management uh, ongoing operations right now are dependent on certain things like frozen ground, like brush shearing and stuff. So that's our deer management in many of the areas is to regenerate the brush. So there's everything from planning to actual work going on to uh, evaluation. So this is a good time of that. Unfortunately, um, this used to be a time when we could really focus on a lot of that stuff. And, and if you're in the field, you're still doing a lot of that. For me, uh, um, one, just one of the reasons I miss the field is now I'm doing a lot of meetings mm-hmm. <laughs> with with things to try to talk about that. So yeah. I miss that greatly, and uh, it's just part of uh, part of the job every day. So okay, how many people in in your department, Chad? Um, Wildlife-wise, a little over 200 uh, plus, maybe 250, 260, something like that of full-time employees. And, and um, you know, we still have vacancies that we would like to fill. But right now, funding and everything is still a problem for us and how we allocate the, the resources we have. We have to be pretty judicious about it. So that's, the, that's another thing that we're doing is budgeting and staff allocation and uh, project money, these type of things. I'll be going to a meeting later this week that focuses just on those things. Okay, and and uh, a lot of them are a lot of the positions I would presume would be biologists that type of thing or typically you would look at a college education of uh, at least a bachelor of science or higher master or PhD depending on what you're looking for the 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 Department of Natural Resources really not just wildlife but the Department of Natural Resources is a lot like people that build a house you have carpenters and plumbers and drywallers and framers sure. and all that stuff so in the department we have foresters and park rangers and wildlife people. Uh, enforcement and you just you know equal uh, waters you know ecologists and things like that. Each of us specialize in in our in our fields and we're required oftentimes to have certain educational things. So in wildlife, you know, a bachelor of science and a wildlife or related degree or higher is is what kind of the get your foot in the door type thing. I know one of the things that Brian Hiller's very excited about was the creation of that actual wildlife biology um, degree. At Bemidji State University. Huge, yes. I am so happy that we have a program here in Bemidji about that. You know, um, University of Minnesota, University of Crookston, all of these, you know, have some things, but it's wonderful to have Brian's group here in Bemidji at BSU um, doing that as well. Anything else you want us to know about before we wrap it up today? I think we've covered uh, almost A to Z. <laughs> yeah, so. I think we have. <laughs> Well, it's always great to have you in here, John. Appreciate it. Uh, John Williams is the Northwest Regional Wildlife Manager. We talked about uh, deer. We talked about uh, and many other things as well. So, yeah, great conversation, John. Thanks for stopping in today. Thanks for having us, Kevin. This has been Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Hear it exclusively on KBUN-FM 104.5, Thursdays at 1240 and Saturday mornings at 8.